0: Grant, thanks for joining us. Thank
1: you.
0: Given the context of, at the time, more than $13 billion of debt,
1: mm-hmm.
0: an oil price that over the last 19 months went from north of $100 a barrel to one point south of $30 a barrel, mm-hmm. and this massive exposure you had to a $25 billion export LNG plant. Mm-hmm. If you could have seen, if seen anything like that happening to the oil
1: price, what would you have done differently? Could you have done anything differently? Mm-hmm. So in all the modeling we did, so not surprisingly, you sit down, you have models and you say, what might the future look like? I think the first comment is that we were testing sub $60 scenarios and that was where most people were. Very few people were calling the $30. Uh, our absolute commitment in testing those and harsher scenarios was to make sure that we always had the liquidity to survive anything. and when we use the word covenants, that the, the covenants attached to that liquidity gave us plenty of headroom no matter what. So the first comment I make is we've not had a liquidity issue all the way through this, nor have we got anywhere near our covenants, even in a $28 world. So we've never been at risk of not being able to fund the company or put the funding or liquidity of the company at risk. I think the issue we faced is exactly as you described, or sorry, that's the first point. The second point is that oil price only really matters to us from about July on. We have only just started production. And in the half year results we just delivered, it shows that oil price made no difference to those results. So origins generating underlying, you know, one half billion of EBITDA and reasonable cash flow, and oil price makes basically no difference to that. So the second key point is it's about the future, not about today. So at no time, even in a lower oil price environment, there's been any risk to liquidity, any risk to to access to that liquidity or covenants, uh, that oil price doesn't make much difference to our earnings right now. But you're absolutely right. We had a lot of debt, which is very exposed to future oil price. Now, the action we took, and your question was, what might we have done differently? In December, when it became clear that the risk was even further to the downside, we put a floor at $40 under our oil for FY17, because whilst we, like many, believe that oil will go up at some point, it's just not quite so clear when that point will be. So we have taken some actions to reduce risk and exposure to those very low oil prices, but they are actions taken, uh, remembering we had no liquidity issues, no covenant issues, no impact on our current earnings or cash material impact on our current earnings and cash flow from low oil price could service all of our debt from those earnings. But the market quite understandably sees the risk of a future long low oil price environment and that's what causes the problem. Our our debt was unsustainable if those conditions persist for the long term. So look, would we have done things differently? I think in hindsight, the only thing that probably uh, we actually did try to do and didn't achieve was to have a lower economic interest in APLNG than that which we actually have. So we have a 37.5% interest. We tried to go to 30 because it was a big investment for us. And I think it's the size of the investment relative to the size of Rest of Origin that's created, if you like, the issues that we've had to and face. It is a momentary yeah.
0: issue though, isn't it? Because if that project is looked at, it's a 20-year lifespan at least that you're looking at. 30, 40, yep. So, if you st- do you still have a conviction that's going to be a good return for origin shareholders? Yeah. And if so, does that mean that perhaps you're better off with that bigger shareholding?
1: Well, this is a, that's a great question because it trying to, it's tries to balance value versus risk. And, and as observers, you'll know that quite often companies get into difficulty. They've got good strategies and there's good long-term value, but some risk arises and you don't get to get there. And I think that's a situation we've been through and other companies in the resource sector are going through. Good resources, good strategy, but circumstances have conspired to create that risk. So that's why we put the floor in place, so the business wasn't at risk to a very low priced outcome and we will then see that better day when it comes.
2: Can I just take you to the present or the next couple of years? Um, and last night Brent crude was $41 a barrel. It was, it was a barrel. Now at that level can that project uh, pay its interest uh, yeah. and pay its, uh, it, some of its principal?
1: So $25 US a barrel based on current numbers, and we'll lower those numbers. But in answer to your question, at $25 US a barrel, uh, APNG covers all of its OPEX and CAPEX on a steady state basis. In other words, business as usual covers all its OPEX, CAPEX, $25 US a barrel. $5 a barrel to pay the interest, so that's $30. And the key thing is that the other $10 taking you to $40 is amortizing the debt on an accelerated basis. So at $40 US a barrel. APLNG would be reducing its project finance at the rate of one billion dollars a year, for twelve years to zero.
2: So that, uh, therefore, the Origin base enterprise wouldn't have to inject capital.
1: At forty dollars a barrel, on our current numbers, no money needs to go into APLNG, and the debt, which, in a sense, you could think of Origin as being responsible for, that's Origin's debt of about nine billion, and the four billion of APLNG. That four billion would be reducing at about three hundred and fifty million Origin share a year. Um, at $40 a barrel. So the debt in the chain is so out reducing. Does cash
0: come out at, at $40 a no, barrel? No,
1: because the, the, the structural issue, and it's a fair issue, is that the way the project finance works is that they get first go at the extra dollar of oil price increase. So until you get to $40, they get all of the increase to service the amortisation of the project finance. And that's that's you know, in today's environment. You say, is that right for an origin shareholder that project finance gets all of that? But that's the way the arrangements are currently uh, But if it was the
2: go to forty five or fifty, origin would get money out. Correct. Okay. Now at forty dollars, yeah. um, can origin maintain its dividend? It does Is that does that? Because you, you raised the question of, uh, of the dividend yeah, in the last yeah. report.
1: So it's September thirty when we announced the equity raising, and we said we're reducing the dividend to twenty cents a share on the expanded capital. At that time, $40 was about the forward oil price assumption. And we made that dividend commitment of 20 cents a share at that time. In uh, February results announcement this year, oil had fallen to 28 as you observed. That's when we said, hey, if it stays there, we have to tell you that we may suspend a dividend if it stays there. So I don't want to say absolutely we will, because I can't take away from the board the discretion to make that decision at the time. But what I can say is that 20 cent dividend commitment was made with an expectation of oil at about $40 through 16 and 17. So, you know, if those conditions were there, then we could, but I just can't take the discretion of the board away to say we will. Your oil
0: price deck, and it's almost identical to every oil price deck I've seen from any of the oil companies anywhere around the world, and it's consistent with the IEA and and OPEC view of the world, says the oil price will trend up gradually, uh, to about seventy dollars by the end of the the, the the decade or towards the end of the decade, yeah. at that kind of level, if it were to stay there, yeah. um, do you get a decent return on the investment that your shoulders have made in APNG?
1: Yeah. So when we took the investment decision, final investment decision on in APNG, we assumed uh, eighty-six US dollars a barrel at eighty-four cents exchange rate, so just over a hundred dollars Aussie a barrel. Uh, at 70, U- I'm just doing math here, I'm not saying this will happen, but it's $70 US a barrel at a 70 cents exchange rate, $100 Aussie a barrel. Now, we don't know precisely what it'll be in the future, but the magic number for us is $100 Aussie a barrel. And anywhere near that number, we will get the returns we expected to get at the time we took that final investment decision. And in the context of what experts project, that's sort of a $70, 70 cents world. Yeah. But we have no idea whether that world will eventuate. You know, I mean, we hope it will, but... So the answer is yes to your question.
2: Take you on a different subject. Um, We are facing a uh, a domestic gas shortage. Um, Can you uh, uh, paint that shortage for us in, say, 2017, 18, and 19? What would it look like as you see it?
1: I think that in 17, well, so firstly, even though you've you've given the correct diagnosis, let me just explain why, because the answer is a little bit in the explanation. in a sense, there's a shortage only because there's a huge increase in demand that comes through the LNG projects. I mean, Australia, in a sense, has plenty of gas. It's just that it's a big increase in We've demand. We've exported it. Correct. Yes. Now, having said that, for 17, 18, 19, you, you would say that the industry is still ramping up, still coming into production. And at the end of the day, you know, the market for LNG is long. So I would say the projects are just as happy to sell their gas in a domestic market as they would be into the international market whilst that market is long. Uh, provided they receive a similar price or a similar net back, that's the first point. The second point is that whilst oil prices remain low, then that means they lower domestic gas price in eastern Australia because they're very closely linked. That tightness of the market clearly will link the price. Thirdly, it makes no sense in that environment because your broad diagnosis is correct and if we look beyond 1819, 19 when demand picks up you know, in LNG and supply gets absorbed. Um, that Australia is putting artificial constraints on accessing new resources so it makes no sense to lock up resources, CSG resources in New South Wales or any Are other Are you saying
2: the shortage crisis comes in about 2019? Well, I just feel... That, that As LNG expands and... Well,
1: no. I just feel that as, as the market absorbs all of the new LNG production that comes in in that intervening period, producers may well be happy to sell gas into the domestic market as long as they're receiving a similar price. But I've got no doubt that the capacity of those LNG trains and the strengthening of the LNG market through the back of the decade will pull more and more gas towards that market.
2: Let's assume a, um, an oil price of um, $40, if you will, just, just, just as a, as a um, and let's assume we're, we the domestic people are buying at the at the, at the, at the export price. Yeah. Um, what what effect would that have on gas prices?
1: Uh, so think of $40 oil as being in the five to seven dollars Australian range. You know, domestic gas prices—that's about where they are today because the market was anticipating they'd probably be 12 or 13. So it was on a bit of a journey to 12 or 13. That journey's pulled up at seven or eight because that's exactly as per your analysis where the netbacks are. It used to be say four three years ago. Okay. So what was four has become probably seven or eight. It was on a path to say 12ish but it's seven to eight at the moment in a $40 oil price world.
2: In, and an $80 oil price world, it would be...
1: A lot more, yeah, $80 oil price world, it Turn it back into Aussie dollars, of course, um, yes, yes. It, it would be back in that $12 range, something like now, that. Now, who
2: gets hit, just for the argument, so that, that happens, yeah. who gets hit by that? Who, who are the
1: areas... Sure. So it three, three needs to be broken into three parts. In terms of household and mums and dads, it sounds like a big increase at the wholesale level, But that's such a small part of the delivered price of gas to households that it doesn't translate into much of an effect at a domestic level, because you've got to pay the network charges and all of the other things. So something that is 7 if it went to 10 or 11, like 50, 70% increase, might show up as a 10% increase at a household level. That's the first point. The second point in power generation, which is another big market for gas, power generation and big industrial customers much more see that wholesale price. That's much closer to their true delivered price. In power generation, it won't matter because gas is getting squeezed out, or gas and coal are getting squeezed out by renewables. But the role that gas will play is for peaking or flexible generation. That is when renewables aren't running, when the markets at a high peak, and at those times, if the electricity market goes to what we call vol, and you probably know what that is, prices can go very high. If the electricity price is $10,000 a megawatt hour, it doesn't matter whether your gas is seven bucks or ten bucks. You're going to run it flat out. And it will make no difference to electricity prices because you're generating and providing that peak capacity that is very valuable to the market. So it it will change the cost, but not make any real difference to to consumers at that level. For industrial customers, it's different. They will pay more for their gas. And it may or may not have an impact on them dependent on the relative economics of those businesses. So the
2: big industrial is brickmakers,
1: They will see a higher. They will see.
2: groups if, they, if they're enrolled. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. So they will fall into two groups export competing and, um, or import or export competing and domestic. Now, in domestic, um, again, it, it's part of their inputs. You know, inputs change all the time. Question of whether or not those prices can be recovered. Uh, if you're an exporting or an import competing, then the reality is that that gas price is the same gas price that your competitors are using. Because they're on the other end of the contracts. They're the ones importing gas at that price. So if you're an exporting or an import competing industry, the odds are you are competing with people who are paying that gas price as well because someone must be buying the gas. So Australia loses its
2: its low energy advantage.
1: Mm. Uh, So the low energy advantage Australia has has typically been in electricity. And and I think that's that's just true. It's been Australia's low electricity costs that's given rise to that term, Australia has an energy cost advantage. And that was built on large, baseload, cheap coal-fired power I don't mean cheap power stations in the construction sense, but cheap baseload coal in Hunter Valley, uh, Bowen Basin in Queensland, the Gippsland Basin, um, Latrobe Valley. Now, to the extent that Australia is losing its cheap energy advantage, it's because of the evolution in the way we generate power and the response to climate change. Because, of course, we're forcing renewables in at a higher cost. And that cost has to be paid for so to the extent that we talk about cheap energy remember that the aluminium industry is really an electricity industry yeah most of our big in a sense big manufacturers have been built on brown and black coal the Trobe valley hunter valley bowen basin coal surat basin coal it's actually electricity that's been the source of australia's cheap energy and gas will make little difference to the delivered cost of electricity because it plays that firming or that peaking and intermediate role and um, one of the
0: interesting things about what's happening in the oil market is this question about whether could ever regain the kind of influence over the oil price and the oil market that it once had. Which raises the possibility, at the moment LNG prices have responded the way they should, which is they're linked to oil prices and so they've fallen. Mm-hmm. Growth in gas, everyone says, will be at a higher rate than growth in demand for, for oil. And, um, for oil. Mm-hmm. and growth in our region will be greater still again. Is, it, is there a possibility that LNG prices will actually de-link from oil prices and in fact perform better than oil over the next 10, 15 years.
1: So I think there's two two phases. Uh, As happens in many industries, you get a surge of new capacity that comes in. So whether it's high-rise buildings in cities or whether it's power stations in countries, things tend to get built-in surges. So we've had a surge of LNG capacity added largely in Australia. And that flows through into a big increase in supply that will probably take about five years to digest, you know, relative to say growth in demand. So I think for the first five years, the general view is that what we call the spot price of LNG will probably be soft, you know, flat or fall, cause this, all this new gas to come into the market. Uh, the gas market is a little bit price elastic, and, and there are two evidences to that. We know in the US the cheap gas has hugely expanded in the amount of gas that's used for power generation relative to coal. And in Europe we know that there's a lot of gas generating capacity not used because it's currently being taken up by cheap coal. Now, I have no idea how Europe gives effect to its carbon commitments without forcing gas substitution for coal, for example. So I do think there will be underlying growth in gas demand in part stimulated by that lower price response through that surge in supply. But if you took a view through say 2020 and beyond, we believe that surge in supply will be accommodated by growth in demand for gas. And then the issue will be, as it will be for oil, where were the new projects in the queue that are going to meet that next round? And I think as for oil, there's a real prospect that, don't know when, but in the early 2020s, will be on the other side of the coin. And that is not a lot of new capacity coming into the market because it was all knocked on the head through this phase and still growing demand for gas. And in that context, it's possible that that gas benchmark will at least track or maybe exceed oil. Whereas in that first five years, it, it will track or be less than oil, so hopefully that explanation. Makes the, oil, sense. the oil
0: price fall has done a lot of damage, mm-hmm. not just to the oil industry and the amount of money that's mm-hmm. being spent on exploration and development, mm-hmm. but to that U.S. onshore oil and gas industry, mm-hmm. where there were a lot of independents financed through junk bonds. I noticed very recently that Shoniya plant, which was going to be the first, is the first of the export mm-hmm. LNG plants in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, the suppliers to them are trying to renege on the contracts because they can't make any money at a dollar mm-hmm. fifty-six and the Henry Hub price. Mm-hmm. Um, is it conceivable that that threat to our LNG, which was seen as being US gas exported into the region, is going to be less of a threat than it might have otherwise been thanks to what's under the oil price?
1: So I think the way that plays out is that um, on our and on our analysis, we look at that US supply chain that you've talked about, Freeport, for example, being the first of those, the chenier plant. Um, our view is that net backs to around $5 to $7 US in Australia. So US gas wins its way into Asia, then you net it back to you know, what we call free on board Gladstone. And we say that provided gas in Australia can be produced at around $5 to $7 US, it will compete with US gas. And that's that's that 7 to $10 Aussie range, a bit more than it is today, but not that much more. So we don't think that the US gas, in a sense, damages the Australian industry. remembering that much of Australia's exports are contracted on an oil-linked price basis. But where it does impact is new projects. And I think for the two reasons we've talked about, US competition netting back and hitting capital on the head through the current environment, it will be very difficult to get a greenfield project up in Australia, I would have thought, any time inside five plus years, because the commitment of capital is so huge. And I think the third element of that is that In our our view, the LNG market, like most markets, will become more liquid, will tend to commoditise. Uh, Once you get a big enough in-store base of plants, uh, spot cargoes, ships, storage, you can see the elements coming into place. There'll be less and less long-term contracts to underwrite new greenfield projects. And we took the view, for example, when Gladstone was being contracted, that they would probably be the last long-term, really big long-term foundation contracts written because buyers in Asia will take advantage of that U.S. liquidity. They'll buy a million tons a year rather than five million tons from five different buyers rather than five million from one. They'll buy a million from five different. So I think that liquidity is also another trend. We've got a factor in terms of how money will be invested in Australia in future. So that, is that
0: view why you've, you're putting your toe in the water on that LNG trading with that deal with um, e and
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so the background of that is, is a little bit uniquely origin in that Many E&P companies uh, take the view that their investors are investing in the cycle so they don't hedge. Uh, That would not be entirely true of origin because we have a utility type business and we have a business exposed increasingly to oil price. In our utility business we run pretty sophisticated hedging and risk management strategies in our generation business, uh, fairly obviously, so you buy your power from the pool but we're, we're always writing bilateral hedge arrangements around that underlying basis risk. So it's quite natural for us to think about the LNG industry in the same way and seek to mitigate risk through some hedging activity. It's not occurring in APLNG because our shareholders are companies that are more comfortable in just taking the oil price exposure that rises. but we can construct synthetic hedges by just writing bilateral arrangements. So the e transaction is a five-year uh, agreement that does two things. If, and there's only two futures, if. If the spot LNG price to oil price spread opens up, then we'll just settle it in the, call it in the financial market. And we won't spend any capital. But if we're wrong, and that's our, better, that's our view that that's more likely to be the case, but if it goes the other way, we know the cost of developing our undeveloped resources. So that's a cap on our costs. So we see it as a, as a risk limiting transaction because we can always produce the physical if, if, if the spread moves the wrong way. And if the spread moves the right way, we'll take advantage of the markets. I mean, in a commercial sense, but we'll take the market opportunity. And it's just much more natural for us to think about our business that way because that's the way we think about the electricity business here in Australia.
2: We talk about the financial situation, sure. But um, coal gas is under tremendous environmental pressure, and as is coal, and you're involved in both as CEO. How do you handle that?
1: So, when you're, it's interesting you said the ethics of it, and I... I, I just want to just call out for a minute that people often use ethics in the wrong way. There's a lot of ideology attached to these things, but I think that's different from, from ethics. I don't think there are actually that many ethical issues. Um, people have strong views about things like climate change and what fuels we could use. Uh, but at the end of the day, if I take our involvement in coal seam gas, uh, one of the things I've done over all the years, and I have to go back and say we drilled our first coal seam gas well in 1993 in Queensland, a well-called Comet Ridge one, We've been doing this for 23 years and I've been very close to all of our activities over that time and I've often made sure through my own personal inquiry that when people raise issues about chemicals that we're using and their impact on aquifers, I know what chemicals we're using and I know what they do and don't do. Um, When people talk about impact of withdrawing water and the impact on aquifers, I I know that hydrology, I've talked to our hydrologists, I've satisfied myself. when it comes to the safety, if you like, and the broader sense of the word of what we're doing, it, I, I have to satisfy myself. I don't rely on others. You know, it's personal inquiry that I think gives you the confidence that what we're doing is responsible and appropriate. Uh, on the way through, issues arise, uh, and we try and respond to those issues factually. Uh, and for those that oppose what we do, they, they really do like to throw the issue on the table and say all these terrible things. And, and I'll give you a classic example in Queensland, Um, There was uh, people complaining about the deposition of coal dust from our activities on their clothes and and on their houses, and that got coverage as the consequence of our activity. So we do the science, and the science says, well, that's actually LERPs, and you might then say to me, what is a LERP? And a LERP is the biological secretion of a particular bug, and it happens to go black and oxidise as soon as it hits the air, and it looks like a speck of coal seam dust. Now, it took us three months to figure that out. But the point I'm making there is we also go to the facts. I mean, at the end of the day, most things have a factual response. It can often take time to get to it, but we work very hard on you know, working with facts and providing facts to people. Uh, coal is a different matter in that it's, it is factual that coal is more carbon intensive than gas and that's you know, that Siriatum of fuels. If the world is to, as we saw evidenced in Paris in you know, last year in November, December, if the world is to reduce um, carbon emissions and carbon intensity, energy has a huge role to play. And the mass there is pretty clear, you know, we have to substitute less carbon intensive fuels for more carbon intensive fuels. Gas is a less carbon intensive fuel than coal and that substitution will occur.
2: Does the Great Artesian Basin worry you at night? Because that's what an Ellen Jones would say, he'd say Grant you shouldn't be doing this ethically because you're affecting that basin.
1: So the coal seam, so the short answer is no, Uh, the coal seam gas industry withdraws less water than the Queensland uh, farming industry. Um, And this is often a a misunderstood point that um, there is already extensive use of that basin or that aquifer by the farming community and by rural rural and urban communities. And that's not to say good or bad, it's just to say it's not as if the coal seam gas industry suddenly started to use a resource that's never been used before. Uh, So it's, its use of or withdrawal of water is less than the industry and of course that water is generally restored to the environment either by way of irrigation or return to river. Um, or reinjection. So it's actually recycled, if you'd like to think about it that way. It's not lost to the basin forever. Now, there are other technical facts I could give you that would probably also bore you, but when you understand the sort of geohydrology of the aquifers and how they work, uh, I'm quite satisfied that the withdrawal of water from coal seams to dewater them to allow CSG production is a very temporal phenomena, which is entirely restored through time. Yeah, the so, is as a, as a
2: CEO, yeah. with these sort of issues, you actually spend the time to Study the science.
1: Have to. Well, I just believe that we're, when we're dealing with issues that do have these contentions, I, I need the comfort of... I need to be close enough to the facts to be confident of the facts.
0: Most of the discussion today has been about the upstream business, if you like, and the LNG in particular. You've got this big, um, very resilient utility sitting in the middle of origin. Mm. And it's where all the value, uh, the market says, lies in origin today, have you given thought to separating the upstream business from the utility?
1: Yeah. So the short answer is yes, Um, but we've also given thought to many other things as well. And when uh, companies go through these circumstances, and it happens to probably most companies, most times if you've been around long enough, you realise you also get lots of help. Um, Lots of people love to give you advice, all of it constructive. Um, so I get asked in the same day, and often in the same discussion, are we gonna demerge or are we gonna merge? Uh, because people have written that we should merge the business with others and people have written that we should demerge. So I've been very open saying, look, all ideas are on the table. The task we're most committed to is to you know, restore value. Uh, in respect of an earlier answer, I can't control the oil price, but I can work with my colleagues on everything we can control to restore that value. And if some of those solutions are structural, we'll look at them. But we've also been very clear that the circumstances at the moment of a very low oil price environment do not favour a demerger at this point in time, but that's not to say it's, it's off the table or wouldn't be considered. But it's just not doable in the, in the immediate short short term future. And we do get lots of other helpful suggestions as well. So it also needs to sit with and be compared to those other choices. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Grant. Sure. Thanks very much. Yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you.